I met Mary there and got saved there and and a lot of th- uh, great things to me happened at, at Central Cumberland Presbyterian Church and later Central Church over the years. And every one of those funerals, they played Charles singing that song. And right, right, normally it's right before I get up to uh, share. And I just, uh, it's hard. And I didn't realize it would do that to Peter. I didn't realize it would do that to me sitting back there by myself. But it did. I love the message of that song. That our anchor because it's the person of Jesus Christ. It just holds. And I think back, you've heard me say again many times, as of April 19th this year, I've been a a Christian 50 years. And you look back over time and you see what God has done, what God is doing, and looking forward to what he's going to do. And I'm going to embarrass the Nance family, just have Tiffany come on up and she's like, I'm not getting out of this chair. I don't know what he's talking about. But was it 10 years ago? This week, they were saved and baptized here in our little building that we opened 14 years ago, and God leading us to do that, and I'm standing in the lobby today, I turned around, and I don't want to embarrass anybody else, because only two people in the building who know him are, are me and Peter, but I got saved it's April 19, 1970, in Central Cumberland Presbyterian Church at Poplar and Massey's, where Kirby Woods Baptist is now, I later became their janitor for three years and ruined that building in, during college. And the very first guy, I was in high school, sophomore in high school, and the very first guy who was my teacher after I became a Christian, and I met Mary, and, and just uh, literally, I look on the parking lot today, he's walking in the building. He's sitting over here, his name's Bill Chadwick, and Bill's been a dear brother and friend for 50 years, and he and his wife, Judy, and I know it's going to kill Mary that she did not see Bill, that Mary's known Bill her entire life. They used to sing together in groups and sing together at, at Central, and I know how much Mary loves Bill and his wife Judy, and it's just kind of like God saying, nice choice, Randy, and just want you to be reminded that I'm God and you're not, and I am so appreciative of that. It's, it's thrilling to me to see BG walking around. Jerry's not having to carry her. She's up moving around and uh, just looking around, and, and I was been so encouraged this week in the several things that God has done. I uh, won't spend all the time this morning on those, but just some things that he has shown me in relation to people much younger than me, like in their 20s, uh, people that I'm old enough to be their grandfather, and seeing their devout love for Jesus and just being reminded by God when he says, I will always have a remnant, is that I was sharing with my class this morning at 930 that the church is going to be fine even after Randy's gone. It's going to be okay. Somehow God knows what he's doing. And looking at those young people that I was talking about this week and listening and sharing with some and seeing what the Lord's going to do, is doing in their lives and looking forward to what he's going to do down the road, uh, it's a thrill for me and for our elders. And so as we get into Hebrews chapter 6 today, and you haven't turned there already, you can do that. You take your hand out and we look at Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to wrap up today the idea as we look at this particular attribute and being reminded that our God is immutable. What it means is he does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same God that walked in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve is in our midst this morning. The same God that saved me on April 19th, 1970 has carried me these 50 years to this point, And he will carry me until he calls me home and then he will take me 
home to my reward. And as I think about that song that my anchor holds, the, the confidence and the reason that I wanted the, this sermon series on the attributes of God and who's your daddy is I wanted us to be reminded on a regular, at least weekly basis for a while, how significant is it that you're a child of God? That wherever you find yourself, as Peter was sharing, it's a crazy world that we're living in right now, and so much that we don't understand, and we don't know, and we have to deal with whether it's involving COVID-19 or not, or it's involving just social uproar, or on a personal level in, in our families, God is immutable. He does not change. And as we looked at last week, he makes promises. And when he makes those promises, they don't change. God says, I'm going to do something, then we realize what? He is going to do it. Whatever he said he's going to do, and when, and when Jesus left the planet, always important to lo- note the last thing somebody says before they leave the planet. The last thing Jesus said before he left the planet was what? Put the Great Commission aside, I will never leave you or I'll be with you to the end of the age, is what he said. I'll I'll be with you. Did he say everything's going to be smooth and you're never going to have any problems? Did he say that? Matter of fact, he said the exact opposite of that in the night before or 40 days before the Upper Room Discourse. He said, the world will hate you. Why? Because it hates me. And if you're going to be a Christ follower, he said to them, as you go, the Great Commission, to make learner followers of me, he had already taught them. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit, who's going to remind you and teach you, remind you of what I taught you, and I'm going to be with you. I'm going to send a comforter, another one, just like me. I'm going to be with you. So, Here we are 2,000 plus years later. Has that promise changed? The answer to that question is no. So he says to the church, go. Understand you're going to be persecuted. And to be persecuted for me is an honor, Paul writes in Philippians. It's a privilege. So go. As you go, know this. I'm going to be with you. So as we wrap that up, as we transition into the the last part of this idea in uh, Hebrews 6 about God being immutable. So he says his promises, I want you to drop down to verse 13. They never change. When I tell you I'm going to do something, God says, I'm going to do it. Jesus said, I will come back. What does that mean? I'm coming back. Now, do we know when that is? No, because he also said nobody knows. So if you see somebody preaching that I know when Jesus is coming back, what do you know about that person? It's a false teacher. They don't know what they're talking about. That's why knowing scripture is so important. So I want you to notice this idea in verse 13. We looked last week, we wrapped up, we were looking at the, the example of Abraham. God kept his word to Abraham, the father of the faith. Now verse 13. When God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, God swore by himself, saying, surely blessing I I will bless you, quote from Genesis 2, God to Abraham, multiplying, I will multiply you. And so after it patiently endured Abraham, he obtained the promise. 
For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation. We have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope, that anchor we'll talk about in a moment, set before us. So back to verse 13. Here's the idea. You look on your handout. When God made a promise to Abraham or when he makes a promise to you, there's two things you note. That's where we ended up last week. He will keep them, his promises, and he must keep them. It's not just that I tell you I'm going to do something. Like, I can give you my word. Like, when I play basketball, I'm sitting in the driveway with my, my son, who's now 33, and finally he beat me the other day. It's it a big deal in his life. At age 33, to finally beat his decrepit old father one-on-one. Well, when I say to my son, I guarantee you this is going in, what is that called in basketball parlance? It's called talking trash. Now, I'm saying to him, I guarantee you this is going in. Now, is it going in? Maybe, and maybe not, because I'm not quite the uh, shooter that I used to be, and my legs are not quite as uh, workable as they used to be. Now, I can tell you, I'm going to be there for you, and I promise you, I guarantee you, I will do that. For you. And I have the best intentions in the world, but what might happen? I might forget. Possible. A crisis might come up. I might have uh, a wreck like three years ago, a little over three years ago. It was uh, May. I think it was three years ago, whatever it was, when I had my horrible wreck down here at Jetway. I was leaving this campus to go to Bartlett for a meeting. I didn't make that meeting. I almost made the big meeting in the sky. I mean, uh, it was my car. If you saw the pictures of my car, you're like, how did anybody? Well, you know, God was just kind of like, I'm not through with you yet, Randy. The only, only area of the car that was not totally crushed, demolished, was the driver's seat. That's it. The rest of it was gone. It's my fault. I almost met Jesus. But I didn't meet anybody at Bartlett that day, did I? Had I told him I'd be there? Literally, I just hung up the phone and said, I'll be there in about 20, 25 minutes. Jump in the car. Head, I'm thinking, what? What am I going to talk about when I get to this meeting in Bartlett? And when I turned in front of that 18-wheeler to avoid the person in front of me who stopped, that 18-wheeler T-boned me, the only thing I'm thinking was, he's going to hit my car. And yeah, he, he did. He did a really good job. Literally, he literally left the road and landed in the field down there where they're now. That's, that's how hard it was. I had plans, and I had promised someone. Now, the people that in Bartlett, what are they thinking? Uh, Randy again. He said he was going to do something. He didn't follow through. They didn't know. But the beauty about God is when he tells you something, what do you know? He's not going to get sidelined by a wreck. He's not going to have a bad day. He's not going to decide, you know what, I'm just not showing up for that meeting. He tells you he's going to do something, and here's why. He will keep them. He tells us so in his word, and he always has. His history bears out the fact God keeps his word. But here's why. Why does he have to keep them? This is such so beautiful for us as Christians to understand. He must keep them for this reason. Because he is who he is. He is truth. What did Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is truth. So by definition, 
If he tells you something, he has to what? Keep it because he is truth. He cannot lie. He cannot deny himself, his nature, so he has to keep his word. He is truth, so by definition, he has to keep it. Now, verse 13 again, the very two, first two phrases. For when? So he's given an explanation in verse 13 about what it means to be, verse 12, an inheritor of the promise or promises. That when I promised Abraham I was going to send a seed, that through that seed through him all the nations of the world would be blessed, we get to be part of that inheritance, that seed being Jesus Christ. We get to inherit that promise. In Micah chapter 7, God made that promise. You don't have to turn there. You probably couldn't find Micah just like right away. That's one of those table of contents looks. But Micah chapter 7, the Lord said this through the prophet. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea, the prophet is saying. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. God said to Micah, you tell the people, what I told Abraham I'm going to do, I'm going to do for them. Despite their sin, despite their rebellion, despite their captivities that I've sent them into to make them pay a price for their sins in the moment, I will fulfill my promise and bring them eternal salvation. And then in 2 Peter, Peter writes this. We've been given, what's been given to us is exceedingly great and precious promises. Yet through these promises, you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And the idea is this. As believers... In Jesus Christ, we are inheriting the very thing God promised to Abraham, the very thing God promised to Satan in the Garden of Eden. When he said, a seed is coming, it's going to crush your head. We are the inheritors of that promise because that seed is Jesus, who is the Christ, who died, was buried, and rose again to conquer sin and death. We can inherit the promise. We get to be partakers of the divine nature when you're born again. God, we talked about this a few weeks ago. When you're born again, God gives you a new nature. You are in Christ. You're a sinner who's been redeemed, set free. What did Jesus himself say? If if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. By truth will set you free. Now look at verse 14 in Hebrews 6. So he says this. We read it a moment ago. Saying, surely blessing, I will bless you, multiplying, I will multiply you. Again, a quote from Genesis, God to Abraham. Here's what I want you to notice about that before we move into part two on your handout. When you see that in Hebrew, and it's written in Hebrew, obviously in Genesis, or quoted here in Hebrews. When you see it in Genesis like that, and you see the repetition of the verbs, I will bless, I will multiply, I will. The idea is this. In Hebrew, that repeated, repetitive emphasis, repetitive repetition of the verbs is for strong emphasis. In other words, God's saying what to Abraham? You see it right here in the context of Hebrews 6. I promise you, but not only do I promise you, I can guarantee it. Now look at verse 2, or number 2 on your handout. His person. Going from the idea of the promises, we just talked about his nature, who he is, his person never changes. God is God. What's his name? We talked about it last week. His name is I Am. 
Not, I am sometimes, and I will be, I am. You don't have to worry about Moses, just go tell him, I am. So, his person never changes. So what you see here in the context of Hebrews 6, talked about it a moment ago, he gives a promise. But then he gives an oath, which is his guarantee of the promise. Let's flesh this out. So in verse 13, he makes Abraham a promise. He guarantees it by an oath. Verse 13. God made a promise to Abraham. He could swear by no one greater. He swore by himself. And the idea, we talked about this last week in court for years. I don't know if they do it anymore. Fortunately, I haven't had to be a witness in court lately. I know when I was on the grand jury, they weren't using a Bible. They were just saying, do you swear to tell the truth? All the witnesses that came in before the grand jury, and they said yes. But years ago, and maybe still in some places, what do you do? You used to put your hand on the Bible and you swore, I swear to tell the truth, that's the truth, but so help me. And the idea is this. The culture it literally came from this. And the idea is, Randy can say one thing. You might think Randy's a liar. But now I swear to you, Randy, that I am calling on God as the one who is greater than me to verify my promise to you. That's my oath. I swear to tell the truth by God, and if I'm not telling the truth, may God strike me down. That's the idea. And so the point is, and this is so beautiful here, God was saying, I want you to understand, I know how you like this kind of stuff. Look down at verse 16. For men, men swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. So he's saying an oath for confirmation is the end of all dispute. And that's the Greek definite article meaning the oath, the only one. So here's what God is saying. I know for you guys that's a big deal to swear by your God that you're going to fulfill and that when you give that oath for you, that's the end of it, particularly as Jews, the idea here. And Hebrews was written to Jews who were struggling with their Christianity. So here's what God wants them to understand. I couldn't find anybody greater than me to swear by, so what did I do? Swore by myself. Why? Because he is God. I am. There is no one greater than me Next week, we're going to look at the fact that God is self-existent. So cool. There's no one greater than me, so you need somebody to swear by to get your oath so, you're, so you feel comfortable with it. Since I can't find anybody greater than me, I'll swear by me. So, he, so what God was saying was, I understand you, and I, wanna, I want to encourage you, and I want you to feel comfortable in knowing that when I tell you something, you can bank on it, so I swear by myself. For example, give you a little Bible study homework to do. I'll check you next week, see man, how many of you did it. I want you to go through the Old Testament this week. Read the entire Old Testament. Start with Leviticus. I want you to go through it this week. Just get you a concordance. If you get a chance, see how many times you find in the Old Testament this phrase. As surely as the Lord lives, I will do blank. As surely as the Lord lives, I will do blank. You'll see it over and over and over again. Why? Because to the Hebrews, that was an oath of guarantee that you're going to do something. As surely as the Lord lives, I will come to you. 
As surely as the Lord lives, I will be there. As surely as the Lord lives, I will, I will, I will. And God is saying, I know that's a big deal to you. And so I'll give you my legal guarantee, solemn, validating promise. I will. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, the Bible says this. The Lord did not set his love on you. This is God to the Jews after bringing them out of Egypt, setting them free. Picture of salvation. God says, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all the peoples. I didn't call you Jews because you were this great nation. You were not. But because the Lord loves you, because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand out of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. In other words... There was no nation of Israel till God made it. Yet Abraham gave him the great covenant we talked about last week. And you had Isaac, the heir. And you had Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. And then you had the 12 patriarchs. And God developed this nation called Israel, through whom he brought the seed. Not because Israel was this great nation. They weren't. Everybody owned them. They were owned by Egypt, they were owned by Babylon, they were owned by Assyria, they were owned by the Medo-Persians, they were owned by Rome, they were owned by, they were owned by everybody. Well, God was saying, you may be the least of the people in the eyes of man, but I have called you, chosen you, loved you, made you promises I will do. And you read the Bible, and you understand history, when all the smoke clears, and there's no longer this heaven and this earth. All there is is the new. The only kingdom that survives is the kingdom of the Most High God, through whom Israel brought us the Messiah, the one who is the king of that kingdom, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. So God gives his guarantee. Verse 17, thus God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath. In other words, I don't have to do this, but I will do it for you. Now I want you to listen to this verse. Because this is how God ties it all together historically and spiritually. Galatians, New Testament book, written by the Apostle Paul. In chapter 3 of that book, he says these words. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The previous verse of Galatians says this, there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free, we are all one in Christ. So what, and in, in that very same book, Galatians, he goes on to say God promised a seed to Abraham and that seed was Christ. Here's the point. God made a promise to Israel, to Abraham. There was no Israel. 430 years before the law, God made this promise to Abraham. Then he brings along Isaac. We know the story. We talked about it a moment ago. And Israel comes on the scene. God says, through them, through Isaac, through, I'm bringing the seed. He brings him. Jesus of Nazareth. But he doesn't set up his kingdom on earth like the Jews thought he was going to do. What did he, what did he say over and over and over again? My kingdom is not of this earth. My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is from above. My kingdom is heavenly. I'm going to die. And then we go, whoa, 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 you're going to die? What good is that going to do us? 
I mean, we're talking about Peter, James, and John, the closest. They didn't understand. They didn't want him to die. They were confused. They were going to go back fishing after he died. And then he rose from the dead. It was a game changer. And then on Pentecost, he sent the Holy Spirit, and it exploded. And we are the direct benefits of that to this day. That's what Galatians 3 is saying. We are the heirs of the promise. And it doesn't matter if your blood is Jewish or Gentile. If you're in Christ, you're Abraham's seed of the promise. That's the church. That's why it's so exciting. The immutability of his counsel. Isaiah 14, God says, The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. I give you my word. Now, verse 18. Look at this, the security, the hope, and the assurance that this leads to. That God's promises never change. God's person never changes. Verse 18. That by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have, what we might possess as Christians, strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. Security, hope, assurance. By two impossible things, two immutable things, excuse me, unchangeable things, it's impossible for God to lie. And the two things in the context are this. We just talked about them. His promise and his oath. Because of who he is, when he makes you a promise and then he guarantees it by swearing this oath, you can mark it down. It will not change. By two immutable things, it's impossible for God to lie. God is totally consistent. In 1961, Alan Shepard was the first American astronaut to actually travel in space. And prior to doing that, one of the reporters asked him, he said, what are you depending on in this flight? And Alan Shepard's answer was, I'm depending upon the fact that God's laws will not change. That, That what God has set up, like gravity, it doesn't change. You see, creation itself, we'll talk about this next week, creation itself is a testimony that God does not lie and that he made it and that he is always there. I'm depending on the fact that God's laws do not change. And the idea here in verse 18, when it says two by two immutable things, it's impossible for God to lie. It's like having a will. Many of us have a will and we are leaving things to our children or, or whoever it might be, like each of mine is getting 50 bucks. That's the way we've, we've laid ours out. So, by two immutable things. And the idea here in the, the original language is it's referring to what, like a, how a will would be written. That if Randy wrote a will, same thing is true today, that will is unchangeable except by whom? Who's the only one that can change Randy's will? Randy. Randy. Unless you're my brother, who changed my father's will, but that's a different story. If I write a will, the only one that can change it is me. So my kids better straighten up. That's the idea God wants them to understand. Because they knew that, they understood that. But that seal on it, it's done. So what God is saying is, the only thing that can change this is if I, God, change my mind 
which I do not do because I am God. So you could count on it. You can mark it down. I want you to see how this builds up to hope. God says things like this in the Old Testament. Just a couple of quotes and then we're going to wrap up. I'm God. There's none like me. I declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. Saying, my counsel will stand. I will do all my pleasure. Through Isaiah, the psalmist. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The thoughts of his heart to all generations. In Proverbs, there are many devices in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the counsel of the Lord that shall stand. In other words, men make a lot of plans and say a lot of things. and They change. God does not. He is immutable. In Joshua, chapter 23, Joshua was about to die. And he said this to the people. Behold, this day I'm going the way of all the earth. And you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing has failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spoke concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one word of them has failed. So now back to verse 18. We apply this to us. First thing I want you to notice, he says, we have as a result of God's person not changing, his promises not changing, his oath that he swears, we have, quote, verse 18, strong consolation. This was the reason that I wanted to do this series right here, this verse. Verse 18. We might have strong consolation. In Greek, that means encouragement. Everything else in your life can go down the toilet or be stolen from you. And God says, be encouraged. I do not change. I am with you. I'm in charge. And I will carry you through. Read the book of Job if you don't believe that that's true. Just read it. We have strong consolation. Great encouragement because of who our God is. But then look at verse 18. Great picture, illustration. Remember, he's writing to Jews. Writing to Jews. Verse 18. The reason we have strong consolation is because we have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. The idea of fleeing for refuge is a reference in the Old Testament to what they called cities of refuge. They were a place of safety for someone accused specifically of accidental murder, like self-defense. Say Steve came after me because he didn't like, this happens all the time, Steve comes after me because he didn't like something I did. And I accidentally kill him. Well, then you could flee to a city of refuge and you could be safe there. Let the elders of that city try. And you, as long as that high priest was in session, that particular one, you could always live there safely. A city of refuge that you could flee to so you could get a fair trial. If you were innocent, you were able to stay there and be safe. And the point here in Hebrews in context, as Christians, whom have we fled to for refuge? Jesus Christ. And in Christ, our sins are forgiven. He is our strong refuge, our encouragement, and no one can come and accuse us and put us on trial because we're declared righteous in Christ. We're righteous. We fled to him. 
Now, Christ is our, the whole theme of the book of Hebrews is Christ is our great high priest. In the cities of refuge in the Old Testament, this only worked till that high priest died. When's Jesus going to die again? He's not. He's not. So our high priest is eternal. That's the whole message of the book of Hebrews. You Jews don't need another high priest. You've got Jesus. Your Christ is your eternal high priest. So nobody can touch us because of who we are. Psalm 5, the Bible says that all who take refuge in God be glad. Let them sing for joy. And may you shelter them, God, that those who love your name may exult in you. And in another psalm, it says, how blessed are those whose refuge is God. Now, verse 18, why? Because we've laid hold of the hope that is before us. The hope that is before us. So point three on your handout and we're done. We'll mention four briefly, but three. God's priesthood never changes. He offers us, notice verse 19 and 20, two things about hope. Sure hope and steadfast hope. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. It enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. We lay hold of this hope. Verse 18. And he describes the hope. Number one. It's the anchor of the soul. That's why I had Peter sing that song today. What a magnificent metaphor for the hope that we have. Is when you drop your anchor, where's your boat going? Nowhere. In the early church, when they uncovered the catacombs and they go back and they look at them, they would see anchors on a regular basis were drawn into the walls. At least 66 pictures they have in the catacombs of anchors. Wonder why? Because they knew this truth. The anchor of our soul. An anchor that they would use, particularly in that culture, had two prongs. Just told us in context by two things it's impossible for God to lie. See the picture? His nature, his promise, his person. He gives us his promise and he gives us his oath. By those two prongs, we have an anchor. It's real simple. I'm going to die one day. I'm going to stand before Jesus Christ as the judge. And the reason that I know I'm going to heaven and I'll be eternally there with him is because he made me a promise. You come unto me, I'll give you rest. If you're in me, you'll never be forsaken. I'm not going to heaven because I'm a good guy. I'm going to heaven because Jesus died, was buried, and rose again for my sins. And I've been redeemed. That's my anchor. It holds. It's sure. It's steadfast. It's the only hope in a storm that's going to get you through. It's used three other times in the Bible. And they always refer to a storm. And you need an anchor in that storm. Whatever, whatever that storm might be. And then the last picture here is that Jesus is our forerunner. It's so beautiful. 
He's our forerunner. He went behind the veil. And you know the story. The veil was a curtain in the temple that blocked the Holy of Holies. And when Jesus died on the cross, it was torn in two. And the metaphor is that veil. The only one to go behind the veil was the high priest on the Day of Atonement. When Jesus died on the cross, the veil was torn in two. And he got direct access to the presence of God for us. No one ever has to go behind a veil anymore because there is no veil. Jesus' flesh is our veil. We go through him to the presence of God. He bought us that by his blood. He's our forerunner. It says he's a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. We could spend several weeks on Melchizedek. We won't. The picture of Melchizedek is that he was an eternal priest and that he was also a king. Jesus is king of kings and our eternal priest. Not temporary. We don't need another high priest. We have the king. Why would we need another one? That's the message of the book of Hebrews, the entire message. He is our, notice again, there in verse 19 to 20, he is our high priest forever. Forever. We boldly approach the throne of God. Why? Because Jesus tore down the veil and we are allowed to do it. We're God's children. So then you see point four on your handout as we wrap up. Please note it. The idea on point four is God's purpose for his people also does not change. These people I have formed for myself, they will declare my praise. Our job as the church is to glorify Jesus Christ wherever you find yourself. The Great Commission is to call on our lives. We'll share a true story with you and then we're going to pray. Be done. There's a guy named Paul Borthwick. He's a global missions direct expert, not a director. He's an expert on missions globally. And he was in a McDonald's in Cambridge, Massachusetts a few years ago. Ironically, there was a young man working there named Peter. I don't think it was ours because it was in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and it was just a few years ago. So he's working behind the counter, and Paul Borthwick recognized him from, they went to church together. He was in their young adult ministry, so they started talking. And he knew that, that, that Peter, working at McDonald's, had just graduated from Harvard. And so he asked him, he had a master's degree, just graduated a master's degree from Harvard. So he greeted him, and you know, they started talking, and on his break, they sat and talked together. And he said, what are you doing here working at McDonald's? You've got a master's degree from Harvard. And Peter simply said, like a, a lot of young people face today, yeah, I got a master's degree, but I can't find a job. And so right now I'm working here to pay my bills. Now, what's your, our response going to be to that normally? Well, which is what Paul Borthwick's response was. What's it going to be? Man, I'm sorry you're having to work at McDonald's. You got a, you've gone to all this education. You got a master's degree from Harvard, and you're having to work at McDonald's, right? And Peter said, no, no, don't feel sorry for me. God has me here at McDonald's. This place is giving me, quote, I'm quoting, awesome opportunities to share my faith. I'm on a shift that includes a Buddhist guy from Sri Lanka, a Muslim fellow from Lebanon, a Hindu lady from India, and a fellow Christian from El Salvador. It's awesome. I get to be a global missionary to my coworkers while asking, would you like fries with that? I love that. 
It doesn't matter where you are. God was there before you. And at the moment, that's where he has you. Joking earlier, I worked at Central Church as a janitor for three years. I also worked in the student ministry. Bill doesn't know this or doesn't remember it. The very first person that ever asked me to teach a Bible study was Bill Chadwick. He was like the teacher of our high school class. And for some reason that day, he said, Randy, why don't you teach? And I'm like, what? Very first person that ever asked me. You know what I found out? I love this. I love teaching the Bible. He said, like, next week, Randy, you do it. I found out that was my spiritual gift. Just God put Bill there for that moment for me. And I've been teaching somewhere ever since. I love doing it. Anytime, place. I love. Talk about the Bible, teach it, discuss it. I don't know what your gift is, but here's what I know. If you're born again, you're in Christ, God has you right now where he wants you. That can change, does change. I never expected to be doing this. Things change. But the commission on your life does not change. The call on your life does not change. We're all missionaries right where we are. And the good thing about your God is he does not change. Would you bow your heads, please? Father, we just thank you that you truly are God. That we're not. We are grateful for that fact. We pray, Father, that we would be not just cognizant of that fact, that you don't change, but also that you have us where you want us and you want to use us to share the gospel. Maybe just to love on somebody and pray for them. And You don't have to be a great Bible teacher to tell someone you love them and ask them how you can pray for them and then see what God does. You never know what God's going to do. So thank you, Father, for the fact you are immutable. What a great attribute to learn. You do not change. That when we read about you in the Bible, we can trust that God because you are the same. Pray you motivate us as Christians to go out and share the immutable God who is our Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can stand while we worship together, closing out. And we'll share a few things with you at the end. Mm-hmm. <clears throat>